Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. But you also had people that were very fine people. Very fine people on both sides. And the, and the aliens would mind meld and give them the technology. They're bad aliens. So the, uh, Are you surprised the Nazis were influenced by demons? No, if demons are real, I would definitely think they'd be on the side of the Nazis. Yeah. Yeah. McDonald's is connected to the Clintons. They chop up the bodies and put them into the sausage and hamburgers. People are being cannibalized. Look it up. And I'm watching CNN talk about this as violent white nationalist protests. We have done everything in our power to keep this peaceful, you know? It's uh, Pepe's become kind of a symbol. Welcome to Yeah Na Passaran, a radio show about anti-fascism. I'm Cam Smith. I'm Andy Fleming. And we are joined today by Alexander Reed Ross, the author of Against the Fascist Creep and a fellow at the Centre for Analysis of the Radical Right and, according to Glenn Greenwald, a total poser. <laughs> How are you, Alexander? Yeah. Ouch. Burn. Sick burn. I, I think I got him back, you know, in the middle, in the hallway. I knocked the books out of his hand. Why are you, why are you feuding with Glenn Greenwald? Glenn's, Glenn's a special character. Um, he just jumped into a thread that I had going on Twitter about people who have tried to censor me and then call for um, media freedom uh, when it comes to specific actors. Um, and, you know, he got brought, brought up and he jumped in there and he was like, you know, actually... Anti-fascists are the real fascists because they're trying to put people they disagree with in jail. And, you know, you're just a LARPer who is a poser and doesn't, you know, cause any real threat to the system. And, of course, like, people just piled on him and they're like, you're not scaring anybody by, you know, going on Tucker Carlson's show, you know, like by openly admitting that you want to do PR for the Russian government, you're not really making Putin quake in his boots, you know? So it's just, it's just silly to watch him, you know, try to, try to rodeo clown his way around Twitter. He just gets a pie in the face. I'm sort of familiar with Greenwald. I know he has a history and it, it, I think he was a lawyer at some point and defended various fairly well-known uh, personalities, but has now become a journalist and is, you know, doing his thing. I mean, beyond the kind of, you know, who's a poser and who's not, I also identify him with a certain uh, form of anti-imperialist politics, which you, I think, have critiqued in the past. Can you speak a little bit to that? And what do you think are the, well, you've mentioned Russia, but what do you think are the points of conflict in these perspectives on contemporary politics? Oh, yeah, absolutely. That's a great question. And, I, and I'd like to note uh, at this point that I'm uh, sitting here with two good friends of mine, Hugh and Nicole from Canada. And uh, they're Canadian, so they'll be very polite. But they've got some feelings about this kind of thing, too. They run a uh, comic book publisher called Ad Astra that everybody should look at. It's really great radical stuff, uh, education and revolutionary politics and, and, you know, all wholesome 
things. But yeah, no, we've we've chatted about this kind of thing all the time. It's just uh, a question of whether anti-imperialism really strikes at power or whether it actually defends a certain formulation of power. What do you think, Hugh? Well, there's this kind of phantom limb syndrome, it feels like, with some of these older guys, right? Uh, I, I don't know what motivates someone as young as Ben Norton to, like, get into the fray and really go to bat for Putin. But when you look at, like, in Canada, we have uh, the same Communist Party we've had since 1921, and they've been fairly unswerving in their support of Russia even since the end of the Russian Revolution. And I think that there's, like, a lot of smaller sects, like one or two weird trot sects, but most Stalinists who will just unapologetically go to bat for Russia or China. And then Maoists will also like get in there for Syria or like any Baathist or crypto-Baathist regime that's still kicking around at this point. And I guess it's just about this Manichaean conception of the world as being made up of a big good and a big evil. And like the U.S. is the great Satan and you have to be on the other side. And that means you have to stand with whoever is objectively anti-imperialist. But it's so reductive. It's like a little... I understand how, like, teenagers get sucked into thinking like that when they just, like, encounter this tanky stuff on Twitter. But adult journalists who are building careers like Max Blumenthal or Ben Norton, I don't know what's going through their minds that motivates them to sort of fall in line and support the Kremlin. Maybe it's the money. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Is the money that good? Uh, yeah, yeah. Who knows? I know I'm getting my Soros checks. They, they accuse me of being a, like an MI6 field agent or some stuff. Like, yeah, they've got such like brilliant theories. It's just hilarious. I mean, one thing that strikes me in these conversations is um, they, they reach a particular pitch, I guess, in terms of uh, you know Syria and so on. But as an anarchist, I'm reasonably familiar with these kinds of debates going back a very long way. And so it seems kind of like, for me, there's a bit of deja vu. It's like... Uh, it, and it's perplexing in the sense that I'm in neither camp and I'm actually opposed to, to both in a, in a manner of speaking. So I find some of the, the dis- contemporary discussions problematic also because they don't, they're not particularly well informed historically uh, in terms of the history of the left, labour movements and so on and so forth. But, you know, that's not really why we've, we've asked you on the show, have we, Cam? No, no. You've written um, Against the Fascist Creep and you've – You've talked, uh, you know, there's there's several dimensions to it, and one is to do with fascist discourse and fascist ideas entering the political mainstream, and the other is that space that's created, which is um, what I'm referring to now, a kind of uh, red-brown nexus, which is also productive for fascist thought and movement. So maybe you could, um, maybe this is a way of segueing into a discussion about exactly what is the fascist creep and, and where do you see evidence of it occurring today? Yeah, I mean, so so I think fascism emerged in the, you know, 1910s to uh, encompass uh, left-wing positions within a far right-wing sort of national revolutionary program. So you have these concepts of revolution in service of the counter-revolution. And you have the manipulation of different trends that were happening at the time, both cultural and political. So like ecology or futurism, um, where fascists were able to draw in interested sort of members of the intelligentsia, students, artists, you know, and that sort of thing. And this basically became fascism's way of recruiting 
for a cause that is pretty nebulous and doesn't really have a core organizing principle outside of ultranationalism. And so the question is, you know, if you just represent ultranationalism, why not just, you know, be an old time reactionary? And so fascists basically just sort of tried to pump this sort of youthful vision into old time reactionary politics and the counter-revolution to sort of make it palatable for the younger generation, especially at that time that was just getting out of World War One, uh, had fought and uh, felt like they deserved a bigger piece of the pie and uh, bitterly uh, rejected the liberal sort of centrist position that was um, putting down the socialists. So fascists thought, well, the liberals are terrible and the, f the socialists are too weak to do anything, so we're going to step in and beat the hell out of the socialists, take their place, and then, you know, basically uh, grapple with the liberals until they get, until, you know, fascists obtain power through parliamentary means and then through a dictatorship. And um, what remains essential to fascism after sort of Hitler uh, took over the power center of the ideology and steered it more towards this sort of conservative rural anti-Semitism and ultra German ultranationalism was this sort of attempt to bring left-wing politics into a radical politics of the far right. And that kind of that kind of movement through like Otto Strasser who basically went into exile during the Nazi reign or through Julius Evola who was the notorious Italian sort of occult theorist uh and his disciples in new the new order or the uh National Vanguard in Italy, who were notorious for bombing uh, civilian targets or assassinating uh, journalists or judges and that sort of thing, working with the CIA or various factions of the Italian secret services. Through all of that, you get this this common thread of this idea of national revolution, this uh, um, sort of co-opting of left-wing counterculture a lot of the time as the good essay by Graham Macklin sort of puts forward. And you also have this anti-imperialist fascism, or rather, um, there's a really interesting theorist named Frederico Finkelstein, uh, who teaches at the New School, and he says that fascism is basically anti-colonial imperialism, where you can't separate the imperial imperium from fascism but you can sort of create that break from the old school uh colonialism to the sort of like idea of uh, the expansion of empire as a natural instinct of a patriarchal state and so you have through the 70s and 80s well and even way into the 50s um, this fascist tendency to support national liberation states and be supported by national liberation states like Nasser in Egypt, for example. And so going into the 80s, you know, you have fascists appealing to leftists through this kind of sense of anti-liberalism, which is almost always lodged within at least an implicit uh, anti-Semitism. Um, so you find a lot of their supposed anti-imperialism 
is simply in favor of these expansionist nationalist states, the Baathists, like Hugh mentioned, or even um, Iran uh, under the revolutionary government, or so-called revolutionary government, sorry, or Libya under Gaddafi. And they try to import that kind of ideology into their own anti-liberal, anti-Zionist ideology uh, in the West. And so you get like the European Liberation Front, which was the leading coalition of national revolutionary, uh, fascist, national Bolshevik groups, inclusive of Alexander Dugin just after the wall fell, and Troy Southgate in England. Heritage Front maybe was involved from Canada. The American Front was certainly involved in the United States. And so, as you can see, like, tracing through this kind of arc in history, you get a general tendency that uh, appears, which is that fascists kind of pretend to be leftists. (laughs) They're like far right wing people who really hate the idea of equality, want to install single party dictatorship, uh, ultimately want to crush all opposition and have this idea of autarky where they hate immigrants and they want to, you know, produce solely for the core country. It's sort of like this idea of, of a radical self-sufficiency embedded in ultranationalism. And, of course, they hate Jews. So there are all kinds of ways that they can sort of couch these fundamental um, positions to make them palatable to left-wingers. And a lot of times people fall for it. And if if they don't necessarily fall for it and just turn over and become fascists, then they'll fall for it insofar as they'll just create alliances with them, they'll collaborate with them, and they'll, you know, cause all kinds of problems by basically whitewashing genocide, like what we're, what we're seeing, you know, these days. You are listening to Yena Passaran here on 3CR 855 AM, 3cr.org.au and 3CR Digital on your dab. We're talking to Alexander Reed Ross, the author of Against the Fascist Creep and Friends. In terms of the fascist creep, I think uh, one area that is especially vulnerable to entryism as the uh, climate emergency uh, heats up, I suppose, uh, is the environmental movement, especially when you've got groups like Extinction Rebellion that are largely consist of, I guess, naive actors who are sort of fresh to activism and haven't perhaps encountered entryism before. Could you speak to, as especially as an Earth Firster, what you see happening with the environmental movement and uh, I guess what your advice would be to avoid entryism? So I just wrote this whole white paper with my co-author Emmy Bevinzi about this subject. It's a very interesting subject. You know, fascists have been incorporating ecological thought within their sort of um, theoretical corpus, uh, at least since the Nazis um, in the 20s. And um, it's so so you could say that this is like a trend generally with like the green movement, you know, you have Walter Dare, you have, um, you know, organic farming, you know, theorists in England during the thirties who go completely fascist. 
and then become, you know, influential members of the organic movement. Um, you know, you, you have all of these different interesting figures. Um, Haeckel, who actually coined the term ecology and then became part of the Thule uh, group, the cult <laughs> um, that involved a lot of uh, fascists uh, like uh, Himmler, who was uh, who was this sort of bizarre eco uh, guy, as well as being just like arguably the most sinister Nazi, which is just like a title you don't you don't want it. <laughs> um, so, uh, and then after the war, the, the German Greens were created were co created by some pretty intense right wingers who ended up kind of getting the boot and then starting their own you know, different green subgroups. And then Italy, you have this thing called the Hobbit camp where they like created this kind of like, um, yeah, I know you're, you're looking at me like what the hell, but it's like this, this like Tolkien sort of like, uh, uh, folksy outing where all these people would get together and just, you know, we're just talking about folk and myth and, you know, that kind of stuff, bro. Um, and so, you know, there's this whole there's this whole trend running through the history of fascism, of sort of green and ecological uh, intrigue. Mm. But you have some personal experience with this stuff too, right, Alexander? Yeah. Oh, oh, oh! I have, I have, I have personal experience. Friends of mine have personal experience. Um, there's a tendency, right, to to in in in. Um, ecological thought to equate biodiversity with a sense of place that is impenetrable as though cross-pollination was like a sin of the devil you know as though nature as though nature never adapts and everything is static and everything is perfect within its discrete borders and you know so so you have like sections of bioregional thought in earth first for example that go pretty far right wing right dave foreman ends up creating this anti-immigrant group called apply the breaks you know obviously there were some people who were really into uh ted kaczynski and that kind of uh, line of of thinking has has prevailed in some sort of nihilist corners of cobweb infested attics of of left wing or post left wing theory. Um, let's see. Oh, okay. And and so turning this all the way around back to kind of your question. Sorry, I tend to go on these like <laughs> circular rants involving history but um uh you know you have a lot of like people from adam waffen and uh the base who actually look at this history and they're like hell yeah and so and so they're they're actually like pointing to things like uh uh ted kaczynski all of these other figures in in the past of of green thought and they're saying, you know, this is this is our thing. And so you even see like memes uh, uh, from their Telegram chats where they're they're like celebrating the Earth Liberation Front, which was, you know, a direct action oriented group that kind of well, it emerged first out of, the, I think, the anti roads movement in England. But in, in the United States, it was particularly intense about massive property damage. Um, and a couple of their members actually did end up sort of turning fash. 
So um, Sadie in Exile, yeah, they were uh, spreading memes about Ivola and, and all of that kind of stuff. Manson, all the kind of stuff that you see now in Atomoff and stuff. Uh, and yeah, I don't know. It's, it's, a, it's a sort of like an open question of, you know, with more climate stuff, are we going to see more sort of fascist entryism in the ecology movement? And, and you know... I think this is crucial if you look at Austria right now, you know, you see like the FPO is out of power and it's the uh, Volks party that is, is in power and they've just uh, launched a coalition with the Greens and they, and they have together like this slogan that's like uh, strong borders and, you know, clean country or something like that. <laughs> something that's just like going to give you chills. And it's like, oh, that's, that sounds, that sounds like something that could lead in really dark places. Mm-hmm. Uh, especially when you have the identitarians who are just trying to, you know, enter every milieu. At the same time, the Volks Party does seem relatively serious about banning the identitarians from their, their ranks and so that's sort of maybe cause for hope that they're actually going to be center right wing politicians who adopt some kinds of sort of green veneer over otherwise neoliberal policies um, which will generally be you know it'll probably be toothless and useless and the coalition will probably fall apart and you know politics will go back to being a complete mess one thing that occurs to me is that the way that uh, you know Uncle Ted might appeal to some of these uh, individuals is because he was also a, a man of action. He was doing things. He was going out there and making a difference. But uh, someone else who recently has, I guess, in many ways, you know, uh, encouraged discussion about ecofascism is um, Brenton Tarrant, who described himself in those terms or has been understood as such. Uh, just to end, um, do you have thoughts on? you know, his role and his position within this kind of broader movement? And what what does the fact that this person who, you know, says they had environmental concerns expressed it through conducting this horrific massacre? I think, first of all, Uncle Ted appeals to these guys because he is like the most crotchety, just angry dude. And his manifestos are all full of like homophobic and misogynistic, just kind of, uh, you know, Jeremiads and, 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 you know, like you said, is sort of man of action, but there's not a lot there going on. So it fills people with this rage against everything in the world, you know, against their families and, and, you know, neighbors and everything like that. Um, and it's sort of like directionless. So it's just like lash out at everything. Um, because the modern world is evil. Um, and I think that there are, you know, valid critiques of uh, industrial civilization that don't sort of end up in this kind of like homicidal mania. Uh, obviously, for people like Tarrant, the homicidal mania is already sort of front and center. So they just like are incorporating all everything that feeds their hatred. I don't see. So I think that his profession of eco-fascism and anti-imperialism right they they could be they that could mean a lot of things it could mean that this is trendy 
You know, like this is just sort of like what fascists are increasingly talking about. I think Trump fed into this because of his sort of populist politics. But in Europe, the radical right populists uh, or rather the populist radical right, I always get it flipped, have been sort of using these these narratives for a long time. Obviously, Austria, excuse me, Australia as well. But I think that he mentions that he goes on these trips, right? He goes like to North Korea. He goes around France. So he's doing a lot of like talking to other fascists and he's talking to sort of these people who really love and lionize Anders Breivik and he's on, you know, 4chan, which itself is this kind of nihilist cesspool of violence and hate. And so a lot of his politics seem to me to derive from a kind of uh, dominant fascist narrative that incorporates this sort of like deep green politics. But fascism has never really been without that. And so, you know, when when you see his his manifesto, it might be shocking, but it's not necessarily unusual. It was to me like it appeared kind of par for the course, like um, with with Dugan's recent book, Fourth Political Theory, he says openly, you know, we have to basically uh, reach out to um, and organize uh, left-wingers, separatists, and green theorists, you know? So he was already basically trying to make these moves uh, six years ago or whenever the hell that book was published. And and I think Tarrant in some ways is symptomatic of the kind of trend that you're also talking about, where there are these increasing threats of climate change. People are inc- are increasingly awake to them, and so fascists are adapting by enhancing those aspects of fascism that have mm-hmm. been there for a long time. Um, but at the same time, one of our findings, Emmy and I, was that uh, they still don't necessarily accept they still don't accept that that climate change is anthropogenic. They'll they'll talk about climate change, but they'll take like a, a pretty fossil fuel industry approach to it, and that might have more to do with you know their connections and radical right politics it could also tie this is nicole here it could also tie into the fact that um facts don't necessarily matter for fascists and that they could be making emotional appeals to people mm-hmm. in the ways that um environmental movements can actually um have reactionary threads like i'm just thinking of the ways in which environmentalists talk about overpopulation or Mm. um immigration i know in canada um a lot of the times the way that we see crypto fascism taking shape is with islamophobia and anti-immigration rhetoric and you know there's not enough (laughs) this might sound familiar for australians but you know there's not enough uh space in canada for more immigrants and what's going to happen to our forests and our water and um it really encourages a kind of, uh, well, like it, it, it's emotional. It doesn't rely on facts. And, uh, uh, I, it's, it, it's frustrating to see when there are leftists or people who supposedly ascribe to certain forms of leftism, um, appealing or, or embracing a kind of like antisocial 
environmentalism that really just comes down to being tired of other people and kind of like regressing into the woods mm -hmm. and fulfilling a kind of weird, rugged settler individualism. This was something that we ran into recently. We were on a road trip across Ontario and we oh, stayed man. with somebody who I knew from the anarchist hardcore scene in Toronto. And I had met him several years before that. And we stayed on his land where he had been living off the grid for the last several years. And it was like, um, I'm not sure how many of those beliefs he had uh, when I first met him, but it was like very an like racist, anti-indigenous, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, uh, you know, kind of attitude that really reminded me of kind of like a like a, a like a rugged pioneer yeah. in Ontario. In Ontario, well, yeah, in Northern Ontario, right? Oh, like, I was say, something like the ferry or some shit. Or but uh, but I think about I think about the way that that crosses with like what you were saying with like the organic farming <laughs> oh, yeah. movement or like people who just go out and live in a cabin in the woods uh for many years and just don't want to be bothered by other people yeah it's pretty it, it feels emotional and it feels kind of like it doesn't really matter what the facts are well and survivalism right like yeah, some of definitely. the biggest sort of progenitors definitely. of conspiracy theory come out of these kinds of like info wars Preppers. devotees, preppers, survivalists, people who really, really believe that, you know, any day now, shit's going to go down, it's going to hit the fan, and you better be ready, and they're coming for you. Um, and, and they tend to also have a lot of kind of feelings about, like, maybe you know, living out in the woods and, you know, uh, being attached to their sense of place yeah. and returning to a natural state of things. There's a, there's the yeah. total, I, again, I feel like this is really specific to North America, but there's this like fake mythology of like a nostalgic virgin forests, mm -hmm. virgin landscape, man's natural state, um, which completely erases indigenous, uh, 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 peoples, but also is just kind of like, it's just not true. Yeah, <laughs> a it, lot of the oh, time. Yeah, totally. and, it, and it totally goes back to, to European kind of fantasies about, um, how they are, how like, uh, European ethno states could be created that are in tune with the soil, uh, right? Like Teutonia. Yeah. The Teutonics and, or like, you know, um, well, I mean, that's the line. Pure blood, pure soil. Pure blood, Ooh. pure soil. Yep, yep, yep. And uh, and and this idea of indigeneity that totally rules out, you know, migration and you know cross cultural communication, and even you know even ascribes you know uh, the term Jewish to those kinds of things as though like the Jews are responsible for you know, all kinds of any kind of like interracial or interethnic you know mixing. In the sense that, like, people and their cultures live in these Volkish containers that would be perfect if not for the insidious influence of the outsider and the, or the internal enemy, right? So, I mean, that's just, that's just fascist ideology. And, you know, they've been doing that overpopulation shtick since the 1970s, so at least. Oh, even before then, yeah. even even before then, I remember reading something by Ludwig Klages, who I think was the biocentrism dude, who uh, in the 19th century, uh, I think late, late 19th century was like discussing how, you know, urban centers are overpopulated and, you know, um, the the true people had to move out into the, the you know, woodland areas and, and the fields and, and really learn what it meant to be part of the, the Volk, you know? 
that all that kind of stuff and and obviously you know like the traditionalists and that you know they're all really into it it's just so awkward when when people try to do it in the united states because i mean australia probably too right it's the same deal it's like y'all we settled here like not indigenous and not native at all and like this is completely i don't know well so here there's this thread of uh in canada anyway i don't know but in the united states where a group of hunters in the east have begun a process of self-indigenizing where they make claims (laughs) of indigenous ancestry so and they did it very specifically because this big piece of forest was put under indigenous self-management and they were worried they were going to lose hunting access and so they basically quite openly invented an indigenous identity so yeah. they would be able to continue to, like, hunt and do recreational sports activities in it. And they're the biggest, like, eastern Métis band in the region or whatever. And the whole thing is just like a, a sham. South Africans are doing that, uh, the Afrikaner sort of uh, Volkstadt kind of idea of, like, well, you know, Afrikaners or Boers have, have lived in South Africa for enough time. So they've petitioned the UN to actually be considered an indigenous group. So that would give them the ability to carve out a Volkstadt in uh in south africa it's absolutely insane wow. like, like, like cosplay of a, especially in eastern yeah i just real well i just realized the three countries represented in our conversation are three white settler or examples of the three major white settler colonial projects yeah so there's this white co- settler colonial project uh and this sort of avatar that it produces right of like what you were talking about, Nicole, of like that sort of like rugged individualist pioneer who like, you know, settles the land and becomes part of it and yeah. mixes their blood with the soil and the <laughs> soil with their blood, as uh, Derek Jensen said. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, Derek Jensen is obviously a, 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 a green theorist who uh has has moved to the right is very transphobic and um recently did an interview with countercurrents which is a nazi it's a i okay excuse me if, if, if any fascists listening to this and who are very discerning about their specific sects of fascism i'm not exactly sure if countercurrents is nazi or fascist or what have you but um for a while, they were they were involved with the alt right, and then I think there was a, a, a um, kerfuffle with Richard Spencer at some point. Anyway, they're one of the most influential white nationalist sites, and Derek Jensen landed an interview with them. Later, later said that he didn't know who they were. <laughs> hey, it could be his lie. big break. Awesome. All right, that'll do it for the radio. I'm gonna have to chop a few things, but we can keep talking for the podcast version. So, Andy, I think you had a question. Uh, several, actually, but I just wanted to... <laughs> He's been waiting to ask for. <laughs> yeah, the stuff about, you know, how the environmental movement has to... Well, sorry, the far right needs to make some kind of adjudication as to whether or not they accept global warming or not and the extent to which they blame whatever environmental problems present themselves, not on, you know, capital and state, but uh, immigrants and, and preserving the, you know... Uh, the racial essence and so on. But I guess Australia, all those things are, you know, um, very much present in part of environmental discourse. And also I, I guess in some ways it's slightly different to the other white colonial settler states in the sense that, you know, it was only 25 years ago or so that the, the doctrine of terra nullius was overturned in the courts 
which of course meant that for the, this myth was that there was no people residing here, so there were no issues around uh, formulating treaties or, you know, even uh, any form of legal or political recognition. It's only in the last quarter century that that's begun to be a matter for law and um, politics in a way that it wasn't prior to that point. So there's been a, a kind of token acknowledgement, yes, of course, this continent was occupied by other peoples and that's significant and that needs to be addressed. And there's all sorts of debates going on now about incorporating some Indigenous voice to Parliament and so on and so forth. But the other thing that was kind of remarkable about the, the High Court decision, the Mabo decision, was part of that judgment was that the courts decided that they couldn't it was not within their legal uh, powers to be able to grant the state license to enter into treaty negotiations. It required a, a re-examination of British law and history and all sorts of other things. So it's something of a, an impasse. But also in terms of the kind of Nazi and neo-Nazi ideology in particular, you know, there were groups of Nazis in the 20s and 30s in Australia who uh, wanted to try and incorporate these Indigenous traditions into their own notions of blood and soil. And the predicament they were confronted with was, on the one hand, you had the obvious facts that there were people here with cultures and language and so on and so forth who, if anyone was going to claim a connection between blood and soil, it was that group, not these English and German expatriates. So they had to try and incorporate those ideas and those cultures into their own notion of um, blood and soil and there was some sense in which they wanted to create or recreate some other Aboriginal nationhood in which um, a kind of, uh, not a shotgun wedding, but a, a kind of bringing together of, uh, you know, the Aryan tradition and the Aryan genius with uh, the Aboriginal one. There's a there's a book by, uh, called Nazi Dreamtime, uh, David S. Bird, that was published a few years ago, which looks at this in, in some detail. But I just thought I'd raise that, but one of the so one of the but one of the questions I had, Alexander, was based on recent interactions online. But I guess uh, the recent period is that, insofar as the fascism and the far right has become understood as being a thing, I guess especially post Trump, there's a whole range of people who are now uh, beginning to often uh, research this to to make claims about what it all means. So it's kind of like whereas some years ago this might have been or this area of study might have been regarded as being somewhat obscure, there's there's a lot more people paying attention. And, and I guess I wanted to ask you and uh, others, you know, what kinds of issues that presents to people uh, such as yourself who've been who are coming from a, a radical political tradition, uh, examining this subject and having debates and discussions about uh, about it with with others who who seem to have a, it seems to me, a slightly different agenda. Okay, to break that into two parts, the first thing that you were mentioning about Terra Nullis and this sort of like fascist dream time type of stuff, really fascinating um, because in the United States, the Silver Shirts also had a very interesting um, relationship with the indigenous people here. Um, I hope you can get uh, Shane Burley, who's another co-author of mine on here, because he is uh, very knowledgeable about this. Um uh, he and I just did a paper for the Oregon Historical Quarterly um, where we had this whole section that he wrote about how um, this guy who was sort of a charlatan, um, uh, you know, pretending or sort of pretending to represent uh, 
indigenous nations um, in the Pacific Northwest was taken in by the fascists uh, as this uh, very knowledgeable sort of authority on indigeneity in the United States. And uh, so he went by the name Chief Red Cloud. Uh, I think his name was Elwood Towner. Um, and I think I might have heard of them. Yeah. Yeah. He would wear a full war bonnet and, um, and inveigh against the Jews and really ironically say that, you know, um, in the United States, once the fascists took power, they would have concentration camps of Jews and native people would be guarding the concentration camps. <laughs> so it's just like, wow, you know, like that is just like, what a wonderful imagination. Ah. Uh, yeah. Um, but so anyway, um, that's sort of like a tangent, just riffing off of your first point. Um, your second point, I think, was more about uh, more people paying attention right now um, to the rise of fascism. Maybe people who downplayed it a while back are now saying, yes, it's a thing. But they're saying, yes, it's a thing because they have a political agenda uh, which is maybe somewhat reminiscent of the third period of the Soviet Union, um, during which they called, you know, um, socialists who were not in line with the communist agenda, uh, social fascists. So it's this way of like manipulating anti-fascism into a uh, sectarian agenda. Um, and I find that really upsetting and unnerving, right? Because there's this tendency, first of all, just to completely misunderstand what fascism is. Um, you know, when I started writing my book in like 2015, uh, uh, I was actually approached by AK Press who, who asked me to start writing it. And I was like, I'm maybe not the most knowledgeable person about this subject. And they were like, well, if you can reach out to people who you know who might be like more knowledgeable, then, you know, maybe they'll write the book. And so I did. I, I, I emailed a couple of people I know who are, you know, super knowledgeable. And they were both like, no, this isn't really like a thing that's happening. Like, you know, fascism is not really on the rise right now. <laughs> and I was like, all right, well, I'll, I'll write the damn book then. When in 2015 was it? This is early 2015. This is like before the primaries. Yet after Gamergate. Yeah, after Gamergate, yeah. Hmm. Even after Gamergate. Um, because the SPLC and the ADL had both released their reports about, you know, the fascist movement in 2014. And while they noticed escalations, they also noted that, you know, membership in fascist and white nationalist groups had declined. Um, and of course they were consistently declining because they spiked sharply, uh, after Obama's election. Um, and so people really didn't think that fascism had any gusto at that point. And I, that was where I just sort of said, all right, I'll write this because I'm going to go out on a limb here based on what I've seen, you know, and it was literally like straight out of like what I had experienced in, you know, sort of environmental circles. Um, and, and oh, I just want to say, yeah, and Trump doesn't declare until June 2015. Yeah, Trump didn't declare until June 2015. So, um, so you know, uh, I, when I started writing, most people were saying, you're, you know, blowing it out of proportion, you're exaggerating everything, this isn't like really significant or interesting, you're just kind of like chicken little. And, um, 
And the same people sort of came around, but they also, you know, during the Trump campaign, they were saying, oh, it's not, it's, you know, what we're seeing isn't fascism. It's either LARPing or people who just like getting under your skin, getting your goat. They're not actually fascists. They're just kids who are just fucking with you. And, um, you know, <laughs> who listen to death in June. The, yeah, who listen to death in June and do everything that the fascists do. Um, and so, you know, the research was really belittled. And a lot of people at that time who were doing that belittling were also saying, you know, that Clinton was the greater evil or that picking Clinton as the lesser evil was uh, itself like a, a non-revolutionary strategy or whatever. Um or, you know, basically saying, if I, like, like Zizek, like, if I was to vote, I would vote for Trump because of this accelerationist idea that it would actually create this, uh, awakening. He called it a great awakening. So, so like, you know, you obviously have these agendas of like, what, what are you trying to do in the world where, where you're like going to vote for Trump because it's going to lead to a leftist great awakening, which I obviously like look around. It obviously, really hasn't um you can say that the the sanders campaign has taken off for sure um it did four years ago too and it activated me so yeah so so like obviously i don't have anything against the sanders campaign per se um but you know it, if you're talking about a great awakening in terms of people getting out into the streets uh, what we've really seen in terms of mass mobilization has been anti-fascists who have been mostly on a back-footed defensive uh, uh, formation trying to prevent fascists from literally marching through our streets, which a lot of people who have turned out to, you know, obviously oppose fascism ultimately have denigrated, you know, and said the work of anti-fascists who are opposing, you know, the, the onslaught of fascism in everyday life is actually um, responsible for it, you know, by this huge leap of, of logical imagination. Um, and so it, you have to ask the question, like, why are people so, so invested in downplaying the rise of fascism for so long? And why are they now also so invested in, um, in, uh, deriding um the efforts that anti-fascists have put in to refusing to give platforms to these folks and yeah like you mentioned a lot of it does come down to agenda and it's and it's quite difficult but but the thing is that once you start off on first principles and once you start off on a a real you know materialist analysis of what fascism is what it means then you find that these guys don't really have any leg that they're standing on and they're just sort of like you know waving around in the air trying to pin all of the things that they do on people that they don't like the other i guess dimension of that question what i was trying to um, suggest or allude to was you know, uh, yes, uh, anti-fascism, especially militant anti-fascism, is decried for being violent and illiberal and, you know, itself uh, fascist. But there's also a tendency which locates these as being uh, fascism and anti-fascism as being extreme forms of political behaviour which can be usefully compared to 
you know, Islamic fundamentalism and other forms of uh, violent extremism. And the studies that are being conducted, you know, are being undertaken under the rubric of countering violent extremism. And so there's, which tends to be, not always, but tends to be centred upon the state as being the arbiter of these values and practices and so on and something which can be relied upon to to some extent to adjudicate between them and to arrive at a kind of or you know secure resecure a, a liberal democracy the other is the extent to which that there's it's the case in Australia but also elsewhere especially within the academy um, there's a recognition that there's something going on on the part of the various, you know, agencies and, and government departments and so on, and they're turning to scholars to fund them to provide, to undertake studies to explain what's going on in terms, I guess, that, you know, don't adopt uh, the, the radical or op- oppositional language that others might, but tend to present these matters in terms of this is a, a crisis of state management. Um, there are various tendencies within society that are, uh, you know, attacking the liberal order, and we need to understand them in order to better corral them to reproduce this social order. Whereas, you know, much of militant anti-fascism is proceeds from a very different political basis. So, I guess I'm also wanting you to speak to, and and this applies to some of the perhaps recent interactions you've had with various other parties. How what what kinds of I guess problems presented you? were presented to you in the, in, in um, researching the book, but also, you know, engaging in public education about these matters in the here and now. And how do you distinguish uh, a more radical or militant approach from those that seek to, I guess, um, manage them in a way that's conducive to the interests of those, you know, segments of society that dominate the state and politics and economy and, and so on? If that makes sense. Yeah, it makes perfect sense. And I think it just kind of is reflected in social movements just kind of down the line. Um, You always have elements of social movements that are attempting to draw, you know, honest brokers into, uh, you know, um, public discourse, you know, multiple stakeholders uh, engaged in a collaborative sort of policy forming um, apparatus. But you can't really do that with fascists. And so that kind of approach tends to fall uh, completely flat. And even when, you know, you have liberal politicians trying to draw anti-fascists into those kinds of discussions, you tend to find uh, pretty quickly that they're often rooted in economic issues, even if those economic issues are not the basis for the fascist problem um and i think that you know what i'm trying to say by that is that like uh people who are militant anti-fascists are generally opposed to uh the state because they would also be part of other social movements that are, you know, in favor of economic justice, in favor of environmental justice. They want, you know, equality and they want freedom. Um, and fascists are trying to obliterate them. And so they take to the streets because they don't want to see their friends being beaten in the streets. Um, they don't want to see fascists. They don't want to see the country turn into a fascist country. 
Um, and for them, they don't have also, also they don't have an invitation to City Hall. Nobody's really kind of knocking on their door asking them for their input. Um, and so you're thinking you're talking about very alienated people who don't really have any recourse but to meet the fascists in the streets and oppose them. Um, so it's it's just kind of a bread and butter type of thing. I know Hugh has smarter things than I do to say about this. I mean, I think it's an interesting question. The situation's a little different in Canada because since the 70s, multiculturalism has been such a baked-in part of the national discourse and, like, so intrinsically tied to Canadian nationalism that even, like, overtly racist social movements need to dress themselves up in the language of anti-racism, which can be a bit of a weird thing. A guy recently lost the conservative leadership contest in Canada and decided to run as his own party, and he borrowed Trump's rhetoric around race and immigration and literally Antifa. Like, he had big billboards up during the election decrying Antifa and saying that he would make a Canada free of Antifa. Uh, And he lost so brutally. Uh, An anarchist parody party ran a dude with the same name (laughs) as him in his riding, and I think that dude got more votes than he did. (laughs) Where I think we saw... I think the, those billboards got went, um, viral. Yeah, yeah, went viral. Where, where was where was he at? Quebec. I mean, he was running nationally. The party was running nationally, and they made an astonishing effort to recruit people of color to run as candidates. Canada has a very loopy kind of politics around race and racism and immigration. There's a lot of ladder pulling up and going on. But uh, now I feel it, like I'm getting away from the point a little. No, I, I just yeah, that's. I mean, multiculturalism became official state policy in Australia in the 1970s as well. And there is a kind of, there was a consensus and there's some discussion about whether or not that consensus, how strong it was and whether or not it's breaking down. But you do also have the phenomenon here of fringe parties like Rise Up Australia, a Christian fundamental, drawn from a Christian fundamentalist church with a, a pastor who's a Sri Lankan immigrant um, a, a bulk of their cons- their uh, membership is drawn from Pacific Islander and other, you know, uh, communities, which is seemingly incongruous when they join up with neo-Nazis and white supremacists on the streets to reclaim Australia. So it's it's certainly similar sorts of things are, are happening in um, Australia as well. And I think that the question is, and, and Australia obviously for you know. Most of its existence as a nation state had had bipartisan support for the white Australia policy, so it was you know very much incorporated into the structures of the state and society and that's i mean one of the things that prompted my own concern about i guess the far right within Australia is there's an argument that the state undertook the role of uh, implementing those policies, which meant that you didn't witness the development of a, a movement as you did in Europe and elsewhere because much much of that work is already undertaken by the state itself, so there was no political necessity for it. But as the increasing distance from that policy, increasing ways in which some form of you know multicultural or pluralist society is being constructed, that means that that ground or that political space now becomes available for the development of these kinds of ideologies and movements. So I've always thought that there was real potential along with, you know, uh, uh, climate catastrophe and economic dysfunction for these ideas and movements to to re-emerge and, and actually constitute themselves as a more serious political force here. Alexander, we'll have to leave it there. Thanks very much for joining us. Is there anywhere that uh, people can catch you online? I mean, I'm at Twitter on at 
A Reed Ross, R E I D R O S S. I don't know if I have any. What? How do you get to Ad Astra? Oh, just adastracomics.com, but it's comics with an X. I think I have a website. What about what about your uh, your your thing? Do you have any anything to plug, Jeremy? Uh, yeah, uh, if you want to hear yet another um, dirtbag American uh, uh, leftist podcast emanating from the Pacific Northwest, check out "Giving the Mic to the Wrong Person," socialism and Simpsons quotes, Posadism and pro wrestling. Check us out on SoundCloud.com/slash Giving the Mic or Twitter.com/slash Giving the Mic or yeah, whatever. Um, we try to make it, we try to keep it interesting. That was Alexander Reed Ross, the author of Against the Fascist Creep, along with Nicole and Hugh from Ad Astra Comics and Jeremy on Tech. Uh, over in Portland, Oregon, that is the end of the show. It is subscriber month here on 3CR, so please do go to 3cr.org.au slash subscribe and see how you can join up and become a part of the 3CR family. Global Intifada is up next. That's it from us. See ya. Bye. Trash, the trash, they pick up the trash, the trash, the trash, they pick up the trash.